Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed Preeti Kasareddy from True Story, the CEO and founder of True Story. And this was a really interesting episode where we got into the nuances of debate. I learned what debate was because I never did debate. And here I end up interviewing a bunch of people. And I'm really interested in this, you know, what is the difference between conversation, uh, interviewing, and debate? Uh, and I learned a lot from Preeti about debate here because her platform, True Story, is involved with incentivizing the search of truth uh, through debate. And so this was a very interesting episode for me personally. hope it's interesting for you guys. If it is, uh, please find us on iTunes by searching for Crazy Wisdom. We're also on Spotify, on Stitcher, and a few other platforms. Uh, so please find us on on iTunes, and if you're on Overcast, please hit the star button. Uh, please subscribe, and if you really, really like our show, I'd hugely appreciate it if you could uh, leave us a review on iTunes or whatever platform you're you're using. Uh, and as is always, you know, I'm always available to reach out to to on Twitter. I I respond to pretty much everybody who who tweets to me or DMs me. My DMs are open. Uh, so if you have any questions about the show, questions about my life. Um, if you have questions about your own life, I'm not saying that I have answers to them, but, uh, I'll listen to them. So yeah, just go ahead and DM me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I, 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 I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show, your life, whatever. Have a great day. Welcome to the crazy wisdom podcast. Uh, my guest is Preeti Kasareddy, who is the, uh, founder of True Story, um, a social network for productive debates. Uh, and I found her on Twitter. I've really appreciated her commentary on both uh, cryptocurrency and debating. Uh, and I'm really excited to have you on the show. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. So what is the number one ingredient to having a productivity product productive debate? <laughs> um, Open-mindedness. So one of the biggest pitfalls, I think, in a platform like Twitter or other places where you might have try to have debates is that oftentimes people are not open-minded. And so the purpose of debate is that you go into it not knowing answers and you're seeking answers and you're seeking truth. And so you have to be open-minded enough to be willing to hear the other side, be willing to hear all sides of the debate and so that you can learn and understand rather than trying to push a single-sided agenda. So open-mindedness is the most important ingredient. And that's really funny because I have this impression, I don't know where I got it from, but the debate is almost adversarial and that you're trying to win. Uh, but it, that doesn't sound like what you're talking about. Not at all. And I think this is a false connotation that, that people have about what it means to debate. Like debate has been around for centuries and debate is the single most powerful way to have to like to frankly get to truth like the purpose of debate is to question and it's like a scientific process it's a scientific discovery of an answer and um if by going back and forth and facilitate and kind of facilitating that back and forth discussion and debate you sort of discover a bunch of nuances that you didn't understand before going into that debate so I think people have that negative connotation of debate because of the presidential debates, <laughs> which are absolutely atrocious and not what a debate is supposed to be like. But if you go on True Story, you'll notice that the debates are quite friendly and no one's trying to yell at, it, at each other. They're actually debating like how you're supposed to debate. Interesting. And so you mentioned the presidential debates. What would you do in order to make a presidential debate more... Uh, effective or more open-minded? That's a loaded question. Um, first of all, like I think the, the format itself doesn't, it's not conducive to productive debate, right? Like they are given very little time. So like they have all these questions that they're asked and these questions are like giant, like global issues and they have to craft a response in like 30 seconds to a minute or two minutes. Like there's no way in the world someone can answer a, a, an, an issue as complicated as like climate change in two minutes. Like, let's get real. So first of all, I think the whole format is just messed up. Like, that's not how a debate, like, especially not on topics like that big should happen. Um, and secondly, like, 
because of that format, what it encourages is instead of depth and intellect, what it encourages is like in those two minutes, how can I capture the most attention and the most eyeballs? So then people will say what they think that the mass audience wants to hear. And so that's what leads you to the presidential debates. Um, but if we really honestly want to have truly productive debates, then I think not only is the, does the format need to change, but they need to start focusing on like breaking down a single issue into multiple tangential claims that can be debated rather than trying to attack climate change or whatever it is all at once. And that's kind of what we try to do on True Story. We'll, we'll typically start off with a high level claim, you know, like for example, we had a claim about climate change and then that led us to, through the process of debate, we discovered a bunch of new questions that we realized we need to first answer before we can even get to the climate change debate. So then you start you, you start kind of breaking down the debate into sub-debates and answer those questions before you get to the big question. Um, so overall, I think for the presidential debates to be fixed, they have to think about a new format, a new structure, focused on more focused topics that are like that so that you can actually get to like real answers rather than just like hot takes. Um, and and Joe Rogan also made a really good point recently where he said, you know, um, why do this on TV? Like, why not do this on a platform where like the Internet's like, you know, free, it's open, there's, it's, everyone's on the Internet. So like, why not do it on the Internet where everyone can can kind of contribute and 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 be a part of this. And it was interesting to hear that because that's exactly what we're doing at True Story. That's so interesting. And it brings to mind, essentially, I've been reading this book called The Attention Merchants about the history of how attention has been commodified and attracted into certain platforms, starting with newspapers, then into radio, then into uh, TV, then into cable TV, then into uh, Facebook and then Twitter. Um, and it's super interesting because I imagine, I don't know this for sure, but I imagine that the debates are uh, as they are now are a, are a holdover from the cable news kind of era. Um, and you know, back in the 1850s, I remember, re or I remember reading something about being back in the 1850s, how debates would be a huge part of the newspaper uh, industry as well. And I wonder maybe true story is this, but, uh, if there is a better way to do it now that we have this communications platform called the internet that you just mentioned, yeah, and I mean that's exactly exact that's exactly what we're doing. So we like how it works is anyone can start a topic that they want to debate about. And then users are incentivized to write arguments either for or against that claim or topic that we're debating. And the community basically serves as a judge. And so they help curate the best arguments, the most compelling ones to the top. And so the people who are writing the most compelling arguments for these debates are bubbled up to the top. And moreover, we have a system where people can also, um, you know, challenge or counter the arguments if there's something that they said that was wrong or flawed, or there's a flawed, they had a question about it, etc. So, like, this is how debate should happen. Like, it's in, it has to be like this community process where you're trying to make a decision and understand an issue together and not just like one person pandering on TV about what they think is the solution. And it feels like, I don't know this for sure, but it feels like a lot of people pay attention to public figures, not necessarily for their uh, nuance, insight, intellect, but more for entertainment and other things. What do you think? Is that an accurate statement or no? I mean, yeah, like we're, and it makes sense, right? Like we're human, we're, we appeal to emotions, we appeal to um, the human side. And so you'll notice that the candidates who are the, you know, have the most, you know, whatever extreme emotion, whether it's anger, happiness, or surprise, like they appeal to the masses. And the person who's boring, but intellectual does not appeal to the masses. So absolutely, like, that format leads itself to people picking who people who you know have the most charisma and um, like emotion on TV. So I, even, that's not good either, right? Like, how, are they the best policymakers? Like, who knows? Yep. They might be the best actors, but 
I'm not going to be the best policymakers per se, but um, I, I, the whole system is just flawed. I, I'm, it's just, it's mind boggling to me that we still do presidential elections this way. It just makes no sense. It's basically reality TV. Yep. I think that's fair. Uh, what do you think, this might be a kind of off topic question, but what do you think about the technology of the written word uh, and the kind of more basic human communication of speech uh, and voice communication? Uh, what do you think are how do you think those play differently? Because I know that you mentioned that you do do live debates, uh, and but you also have a lot of text-based text arguments. What do you think of the difference between those two forms for communication? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's something that we are trying to figure out ourselves in the sense that like, where do we think, um, like, do, do we build a platform for both or do we really focus on one? And right now we have both. and the fundamental realization we've had is like they work in different contexts. So, um, you know, text works. The, the beauty of text is like, it's permanent. It's long lasting. You can read it anywhere. You can reference it anywhere. Um, you can look, you can kind of, uh, poke holes into it. You can start a sub conversation off an argument that someone made. Like there's that permanence to that. There's like a physical, you know, written word that you can actually interact with um, that makes it powerful. Uh, whereas like voice, you know, it's kind of ephemeral and you're not going to like reply to a podcast like that. There's no really format to do that. So, but the beauty of voice and video is it, it, it it's obviously way more engaging, right? Like when you hear a human talking and arguing and debating their side, it, it, the engagement level is just like 10x higher than reading text. So there's that trade-off between something being super engaging in video or voice format versus something that's probably less engaging but more permanent and something that can actually like um, is conducive to an actual conversation, which uh, in text format. So there's trade-offs and how and also it's also people, right? Like there's a lot of people. Who don't want to be on video and but they feel much more comfortable writing or vice versa like they don't like to write but they would be super down to hop on a video and explain their point of view so not it not not text doesn't suit for everyone and video doesn't suit for everyone so i think what we're trying to do is find the balance where like the people who want to debate in sort of a a written format like can do that, but then the people who want to host live debates and do their debates in voice or video can also do that. And I don't think it's one or the other. Um, but the other cool thing about voice and video, in my opinion, is that like, um, like it's really hard to, especially with the whole like fake news stuff, like it's really hard to fake news a video. <laughs> Uh, especially if it's live, like you can't fake yourself. So there's like, there's that like element to it where, you know, it's that real person saying that real thing. Um, whereas like text doesn't necessarily have that. Hmm. Although it's going to change though, but I don't want to go, I, I, I don't want to go into deep fakes just yet, but uh, you said something really interesting and it's been on my mind for a long time because I started this podcast deathly afraid of videos and recording myself speaking. Um, and uh, so I was super nervous for the first year, I'd say, about doing it. Uh, and now I've become really comfortable with it. I traditionally have found most of my information, have read most of my things, reading through text, uh, through books, through um, uh, online sources. So it's been really interesting for me to go into these territories of kind of discomfort where I'm uh, doing something that I don't tra traditionally do. And that ties into something I've been reading. I read in this book called Job's Body. Um, and he makes a claim, which is a really interesting claim, that we have this ability to have abstract thoughts, something that other animals probably don't have. Um, and we have these abstract thoughts, but unless we translate them into either speech, writing, or action, um, they don't leave the brain. So it's basically it, they don't make a material manifestation except for neurons spiking um, besides those three three pathways. And so 
what I've been become really interested in is how to become good at explaining a point in all three of those. And the one that's really interesting and most basic to us as human beings is that action, um, that ability to act out something. And a lot of people feel uncomfortable in the game. Um, I'm forgetting the it's Pictionary. Uh, oh, and maybe it's not Pictionary. It's uh, when you act out or mime something um, or even things like improv. And those are really fun. And I've noticed something that if you go to, I've lived in a lot of different countries and humor, linguistic humor doesn't really translate from one language to another. Um, but uh, the kind of body humor, if you get on the ground and start like wiggling around and doing something silly, people from any culture will will laugh. Um, uh, so there's something really basic to this kind of acting out um, thing that is common in improv or comedy. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting in these three different things. Um, Mm-hmm. What what are the most important things that you've learned uh, in the last month from doing True Story? Interesting. Um, I'll have to think about that in a, a few for a few seconds. Let's see. So I think like one thing, for example, that I've learned is um, this: the biggest, the the single most important thing in a startup is how quickly you can run experiments and how quickly you can learn, and. It's super important, not only from a company perspective, that you are constantly running experiments and constantly either failing or winning on those experiments. Like you simply don't have time to take months and months to try something out. Like you have limited time, and it's all about how many experiments can you run in a short period of time. And it's been, it's been, and like and when I first started True Story, I didn't really fully. I've heard of that advice before. But I didn't really understand it. But once we put the product out, finally in the hands of users, it made so much sense, like what people meant by that. Because like what we had to do, like before we had the product in front of users, like we had no idea like what experiments we could even run, right? Like you don't know, your, your users are not using it. So finally, when you put the product in front of users, we had a chance to like, start to run experiments of like, okay, how do, what happens if we change this? What happens if we change this? What happens if we do this? What about this? And these are all like calculated and measured experiments to see what hits and what doesn't hit. And I finally clicked like why some startups fail from being too slow. And Paul Graham always says this, where he's like, you know, the, the death of a, like a slow startup is like the death of a startup. So like how fat, how fast you can move and iterate is like the number one advantage that you have because you you don't have capital as an advantage you don't have um talent like you know big name talents as an advantage you you don't have time as as an advantage so it's like your speed is the only advantage you have as a startup and personally that's been something that's finally ingrained in me in a in a powerful way and jeff bezos also says this a lot and when you it's interesting because when you hear advice and when you read advice but then when you actually live it, it's like su- such a different thing. And it's such a beautiful thing to finally see and understand what that person meant when they said that. Because like now you're living it and you're breathing that advice. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, Jeff Bezos talks about how um, if your failures are not growing at the same rate as your successes, you're doing something wrong or something along those lines where he's like, you have to be failing a lot to be succeeding a lot. And that's so true. And that's something that we actively do at True Story where we we, we run, exper- like we, we try a lot of things and we unroll them as soon as they don't work out because like, and the only way for us to know that they won't work out is by trying it rather than, um, I think one thing that a lot of think people, one thing that people tend to do sometimes is spend too much time thinking about the idea or thinking about doing something, almost overanalyzing and not ever taking action. And I think that is also like 
that's super dangerous for a startup. It's just like overthinking, overanalyzing anything rather than just running experiments and trying and failing. So I think that's been the biggest lesson learned for me. That's really interesting. And it brings up a point. Eventually I'm going to do uh, maybe like a tweet storm or an article on all the spiritual lessons I've learned from people who are in kind of non-spiritual fields and don't consider themselves uh, spiritual because what you just said also has an application uh, as I've found in order to how we kind of live life. Uh, Life, if we really pay attention to it, has tons of opportunities for us to grow um, every time that we're kind of hit with an emotion usually that's a that's that's a signal that we're being triggered in some way and that trigger is a brilliant key into understanding something more about ourselves and the way that we operate um and so and then there's this one kind of concept in in hindu philosophy the uh not necessarily hindu philosophy shaivite kashmir shaivite philosophy which um talks about samskara and a samskara being um, an impression, a subtle impression that we we have that our body has kind of um, taken on from some experience when we were younger that was too intense for us at the time to fully process. And then these life processes come and hit us and, and trigger us. And then it brings it up. Uh, and in that moment of bringing it up allows us, if we choose to uh, essentially integrate it and to to fully let it, that emotion that's stuck in there pass through us. Um, and I found that the faster I do this, uh, the more flow-like life becomes until I hit a bigger one, and then it's always more more difficult. Um, <laughs> what, what do you have a spiritual practice? Do you even think about that stuff? Do you do you meditate? Do you do any other types of stuff? It's a good question. I was talking about this um, with a colleague later earlier today. Um, it, so for some reason, meditation seems to have been taken off in the tech industry recently, probably because of all the stress that they're put under. Um, personally, I do not meditate. I do yoga on the weekends. And I would say um, I'm naturally pretty zen. And if you meet me in person, you'll kind of see that too, where uh, I don't have extreme anxiety or extreme emotions um, I'm pretty steady state most of the time. And and so personally, I haven't found a need to do yoga. Um, I think I manage my stress pretty well. But um, it's definitely something that like I've known that I have really good friends that say that it's changed their life in big ways um, and stuff. Yeah, like I'm, I'm curious to try it because maybe I'm missing out on something that I don't know about. But personally... I- I've never found that found that I like have have I've never felt like I needed it, so I haven't done it yet. Yeah, I would argue that you you don't have a formal meditation practice, but everyone on this planet has an informal meditation practice in the sense that meditation isn't necessarily what people talk about when they most people when they say meditation, they actually mean a uh, focused concentration technique where you focus on your breath over and over and over again and then you um uh, and then you enter a state of meditation but meditation is the natural state that all of us experience at some point in our lives um and meditation is just a formal practice of making that experience much more uh consistent uh so there's we have this awareness uh, you know you have an awareness right now we're both kind of focused on awareness on this conversation um and that awareness that is meditation basically yeah yeah interesting that's a good way to frame it yeah um it's really funny because people go on these crazy spiritual journeys they go and do these 10-day meditation retreats and they do all this stuff uh and it's all essentially bullshit because like it, it it's always present so you can always you can always tap into it at any moment um uh <laughs> did you call these retreats bullshit interesting yeah i've never found i've always like been a little bit skeptical of them i feel like you shouldn't need to go on a retreat to meditate. I think like, you can meditate anytime, like you're saying. But I think, yeah, have you ever been on one of them? I've been on many, and that's how I know. And 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 I don't I don't mean to say that they are totally bullshit. Like for yeah. somebody, they can they can be a very helpful part in in their in their trajectory. But ultimately, it doesn't really like do anything like going off for ten days and kind of creating a little cloistered environment where you can kind of practice this stuff. 
it's helpful, but then like the real test is how, how much you can bring it into everyday life. Um, and that there is no practice. You just, you just have to kind of do it, um, over and over and over again. Um, so yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And it's really interesting you, you what you were talking about debate earlier, uh, cause I had this kind of image in the, in, in Tibet, they would have these universities in the same way that universities in the West were created uh, primarily as religious institutions. They would have the same thing and they would talk about the spiritual philosophy and they would have these intense debates with like uh, hundreds of people and all the lamas who are the monks uh, would make these claims and they would whip these whips, uh, not at people, but like would as a, like a artistic way of making a point, they would make this ele elegant point about awareness and then they would just like whip this thing um and then it would be the turn for the next person um and it was really interesting and i i like that that framing of debate of like this is we neither of us know the truth let's find the truth out and in that in this podcast i've come to the conclusion that it is one of the best ways that i have found for kind of becoming much more clear on uh, what is actually happening um interesting what is, what is this debate in tibet like I, it yeah, like tell me more. Uh, I mean, that, that's most of what I know. It's just like if you want to learn more about it, it uh, there's two strains of philosophy: Kashmir uh, uh, Shaivism, um, mm -hmm. uh, which is tantra. Uh, but most people nowadays think of tantra as the uh, sexual stuff. That's actually neo tantra, um, and it's an invention of the 1900s. Uh, uh, tantra uh, was originally in Kashmir in India, in northern India, uh, and then the spiritual philosophy was developed there and then brought into Tibet. And then that's where Vajrayana Buddhism came, um, which is Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, and then they both interacted and moved and then they went all over India um, and then spread all over India. And then, uh, uh, and so, yeah, th these, these um, philosophies were debated like that, um, both in Tibet and in, in Kashmir. Um, Interesting. Very cool. Yeah, and it's really it's really interesting because it all comes around to the ninth century, ninth century India, um, and uh, before that, they had like Pat Patanjali was really a kind of a sage who was very popular, um, and that was around 400, 500 BC, and that was at the same time as you have the Greeks in uh, Greece coming up with their philosophies, and um, in, in India coming up with their philosophies. That's when Buddhism came around. Uh, and then there was this period of about 600, 700 years where people totally lost the, the practice of meditation um, and they uh, stopped meditating. It just dropped off the map until ninth, ninth century uh, India and in, in Kashmir, they kind of developed a new philosophy and they came up with some new interesting stuff, one of which is, is highly interesting. And I invite you or any of the listeners to uh, consider it for yourself, which is that any phenomena that we have, um, this conversation we can use as an example, there was a beginning, now we're in the stasis, and then there will be an end. Um, and so there is, every phenomena fits under that under that framework. Um, and then there's another added kind of thing, which I'm going <laughs> to, it'll be interesting to see if I can explain it. Uh, so we have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Every phenomena has that, whether it's a small phenomena, such as like this conversation, or whether it's a larger one for a, a life, for example. Um, uh, and then there's another added, which is how aware we are of that being a phenomena. So we can be either contracted and not be aware of ourselves as witnessing these experiences, or we can be expanded and, uh, kind of be aware that we are the observer of these experiences. Did that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I feel like I've heard a little bit of this, mm. um, and yeah, it's, it's definitely like, you're, you sound more, uh, more knowledgeable about this than I am. And I'm, I'm technically Hindu. Hmm. Uh, it's super cool to see that. Where, where uh, were you, were you born in India? No, I was born in America, but my parents are both Indian and they immigrated here. And so I actually lived in India for four years when I was hmm. younger. Um, and so I know I'm very familiar with the culture and I know the language, everything. Uh, but personally, I've never been like, I, I definitely respect Hinduism. I, I'm Hindu. I call myself Hindu, but I've never been super religious per se. Uh, and, but it's like, it's interesting cause I, I often meet friends who 
or not Indian, but they understand they they're very into Hinduism, and it makes sense. Like, I think like the the religion, the the whole culture is it's beautiful, and I think it has a very rich history that um that is easy to fall in love with, and um yeah, like definitely something that like I I personally want to learn more about as well. What do you think about the technology? Uh technology innovation opportunity in India, uh, where it is now? Do you study that at all? Do you follow that? So I, I've been to India recently, and I don't study it per se, but I think, like, it's so fascinating that how that technology, the way technology uh, is adopted and used in countries like India and China is so different from America. Um and it's you know one thing that's i found fascinating about india for example is like they almost skipped the whole desktop generation and they went straight to mobile and um so then like when i went so the last time i went to india was 10 years ago and then i recently went two years ago and i was shocked to see the the kind of the major shift the technology has created in in India where now people have cell phones and they can contact each other. It was just like a completely different country. Mm. And, um, but at the same time, I think what's interesting about the Indian technology market is that the, the, the wealth disparity, like the, the class, the income disparity, class disparity, whatever you want to call it is like, is massive, right? Like there's, there's different classes in India and there's like, incredibly wealthy people and then incredibly poor people and so like the the so like there's there's like i think like the the number of even though the country has a billion people the number of people who are like actually willing to pay for services and technology is is pretty limited to the kind of upper class people um, and so the lower class so that kind of limits the market to them and then the lower lower class people it's a smaller much smaller market right they have much less to spend and so even though so that's kind of the interesting thing about india is that even though there's like so the population is massive um the market for technology is actually perhaps not as big because the spenders are small uh, unless it's like a consumer app like some sort of social network that that, yeah, then you're selling ads and mm-hmm. and stuff. But even still, right? Like if you're if you're sending ads to people who can't afford to buy the stuff you're sending ads yeah. to, like, is that really like, is that profitable? No. Yeah. So yeah. And that's that's really interesting. So I know that in China, the middle middle class is about three hundred million people. Um, so this whole you know whole size of the United States itself out of out of one point one billion people. And in India, I don't know the numbers, but I'm looking at them right now. And um, yeah, Indian middle class is 3% or 40 million of Indian population. Um, so it's it's way smaller than the Chinese, um, the Chinese uh, thing. So yeah, I think you're right. Um, what about what about a kind of, can you talk more about cryptocurrency or involvement in cryptocurrency or interest in it? Does it have a place in True Story? Is True Story going to be uh, um, doing crypto at all? <laughs> so we are built on a blockchain. We just don't talk about it. <laughs> I don't think users need to know about the blockchain, frankly. So we don't talk about it on our website. I don't like. We just don't want, want to mention it because we want to build a product that users find useful. And the fact that it runs on a blockchain is 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 what makes it unique in the sense that like the value that's created by the network and the platform is something that we will share with the users. And that's I think that's that's what's fundamentally new about crypto, right? Like these crypto networks, they're building these platforms. And unlike before where, you know, the founding team or the investors got to kind of capture all that value, we're finally building platforms where there's an incentive for the users to be a huge part of the network as well, including the making the platform successful as well as capturing that value when it's successful. So we are built on the blockchain and we have a token and it's not on mainnet yet. So everything's on testnet, but the, the idea is like the, the value that these users are creating is something that they will get to capture as well. 
rather than purely true story capturing it. So I want to, uh, I, I'm not familiar with those two, two terms, the mainnet and testnet on what, uh, is it on Ethereum blockchain? Or, oh, okay. or, so yeah, so we are building our own application specific blockchain and we're using something called Cosmos mm. to do that. And Cosmos gives us this SDK that basically allows us, they build, they've kind of abstracted away all the different parts of a blockchain and put it into an SDK. Mm. And so they give us an SDK and we use that SDK to build our blockchain. Um, and we have our own blockchain and we, we, we honestly, like we evaluated using something like Ethereum, but our throughput is so high that we just, we just cannot afford to have, we like, it would be dog slow if we tried to build on Ethereum. Mm. So we're like, we can't, we're building, we're building a consumer app. So we chose to build our own blockchain. It's, and so, um, testnet means that it's on a test network and the tokens are not real so they're test tokens and then mainnet means that that's when we officially uh, call the tokens real and they have value hmm. and so forth um, right now they're they're not valued but people are still earning on the platform so you can almost think of the tokens right now as more like in-app points um, but when we go on mainnet they'll be there'll be real tokens. Oh, very cool. And that's really interesting about cosmos.network that uh, I, I want to reach out to them for an interview because that sounds like a really interesting technology. Um, uh, and then you guys have essentially built your own and you're, you're, you're thinking in advance thinking, okay, how we're, we're, we're building this platform where people can discuss ideas and get reward, rewarded for the, those ideas, either through social proof or, or for through, um, through actual capital is what yep. you're planning. Yep, exactly. That's really interesting. Um, so I'm really yeah, interested. Cosmos, uh, yeah, Cosmos is, I've done, I've done, a, I've done a lot of, um, I've even written blog posts on Cosmos and stuff. I, I have a, I have a ton of respect for them. I think they're, they're, without them, we can't build true story on a blockchain. Like they've kind of really thought about how to build scalable applications and stuff. Um, so it's definitely worth talking to them if that's interesting to you. That, yeah, it's really interesting because that they're, I love I love when when any and any any time there's a gold rush I love it when people actually build the mining tools for that and Cosmos seems like a, a the 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 you know in the in the gold rush in the eighteen um, forties people would say um, you know people were coming from all over the world to San Francisco in order to mine gold but then the people who really made a lot of money was the people selling the blue jeans people selling the pickaxes people selling all the the material they needed to to actually mine the gold and Cosmos Network seems like that. Um, yeah, exactly. So I'm really interested in using True Story. Um, what is the most, if I want to go on there, where should I or where should my listeners kind of go to understand or to find the most interesting debate right now? Sure. So you can just go to beta.truestory.io. So T-R-U-S-T-O-R-Y.io. Um, and you can see all the top debates happening. So, I mean, debates are happening every day. So what you'll see on the trending feed um, is the debate, top debates of the day or the week. Um, yeah. And jump into any debate and join us. Like basically how it works is people uh you're incentivized for jumping in and writing an argument on a debate and the more people that agree with your argument because they find it compelling the more you earn and then the best arguments kind of get surfaced to the top so your arguments are being highlighted if they if a lot of people are finding it compelling and, and wanting to reward you um, and then there's also disincentives where if you come in and try to write a argument with you know no logic or no evidence or you try to spam or or um or or you try to have write an argument that's a personal attack basically if you don't follow our values and guidelines then we also have disincentives where if the community decides on a consensus basis that your argument is is bad then you get disincentivized and you lose tokens uh so this sounds similar to Quora in the sense that building a, a, a I'm not saying that the same thing, or, but I'm saying that the, it seems a similar where you guys have kind of like a very uh, uh, upfront value 
value uh, communication um, and you want people to stick to that. And the thing that I, I wonder about is uh, how do you make sure it's not a kind of crowd crowd assigned truth or um, kind of uh, that truth is only mediated by the crowd? I mean, who else is supposed to be mediated by? Is well, there some truth insider? Well, yeah, let's, I'd, lo- I'd love to talk about truth. Uh, let's, so, so um, to me, truth is not necessarily in the hands of the crowd. I'm not saying that it's also in the hands of the individual. Um, I, I view reality as I have my senses. My senses are allowing me to see and hear and all these things, but that then they all go through in my brain and are essentially giving me an image of reality, not reality itself. I don't have touch with reality itself, but I also don't believe that the crowd has uh, access to reality. I believe that uh, the crowd uh, creates consensus reality. Um, so reality that is, uh, but I don't believe that that is reality either. Um, but I'm, I, so I'm skeptical that either an individual can, has access to the truth or that the crowd has access to the truth. I mean, I think like, yeah, you're right in the sense that like, that's, and that's the beauty of, uh, use like the, that's the beauty of ha- like having a community try to reach consensus, right? Like if I write an argument and like some of it is true, but then like some of it, like maybe my sources are flawed or something, then the, someone else comes in and if there's incentives in place for them to counter your the false information, then they'll do that and then new information comes up. So like, that's how you get to truth, right? Again, like debate is the most powerful way because you're going back and forth trying to counter each other until you get down to the source of truth that you wanna believe. Um, and so, no, it's not one person dis- determining the truth and it's not the crowd dis- determining the truth, but it's like, it's like collectively, it is kind of, I mean, it is kind of the crowd dis- determining the truth, but it's not like everyone just votes on one thing and then it's like a consensus vote. It's, it's more like a back and forth of like debating to get to the truth. So it's, well, and that's, so that's what I got from your answer is that essentially it's, uh, um, oh no, I'm going to lose it. Uh, so uh, yeah, good faith that that in order to find the truth, uh, everybody in the community discussing that must have good faith, and there can't be any trolls. <laughs> um, I mean, again, like um, the trolls, even if they're trolls, if there's strong disincentives in the system, and the people, as long as there's more good faith people than the trolls, then the trolls will get disincentivized. So what you're saying is essentially uh, in the same way that crypto is now allowed for um transparency uh and that transparency is allowing large groups of people to then uh motivate to focus their work um and be incentivized to work to towards a certain goal with no one leader in charge um you're trying to do the same thing but for philosophical or uh, uh any type of debate yes that's super interesting um that's really cool. Exactly. So what are the most important incentives to uh, uh, finding truth through group communication? What are the most important incentives, yeah. you said? Yeah. How do you guys incentivize that? So like, so basically in the community, you earn reputation and, and monetary incentives for again writing the arguments other people find compelling and then you're disincentivized for writing arguments that spread false information or um or attack someone personally and that's kind of those are the incentives that right now they're very simple and we we hope to layer in we didn't we had a much more complicated system before but then we kind of stripped it down to be very simple because complexity means you have no users because users don't want to deal with complexity. So we keep it simple. And really, like, I think oftentimes people want to get into like super complicated incentives and all that. But like, 
I think a lot of it fundamentally comes down to like the value system and the community that you build and making sure that the community follows those values because um, that's like, I think that's what really like makes or breaks like the ability to get to truth. Like is like, is everyone open-minded? Not everyone, but are most people open-minded enough? Are they coming into this conversation with the intent to learn or are they coming into the conversation with the intent to spread propaganda? Like, and so the intent on True Story and everything, every decision we make on the product is making sure that like it encourages that open-mindedness and not hot takes. And so, for example, on Twitter, um, when you go on Twitter, like tweets are so easy to send, right? Like you can send a tweet in like two seconds. And so it's it's conducive to like really quick reactions. You get angry, you like... It's so easy to like just say the wrong thing. And so that doesn't incentivize truth. It incentivizes like like emotion. almost like yeah, emotion. And so on true story, like the the actions like, yeah, they're a little bit heavier. Like writing an argument is not something that you can just like fire off in a second. You actually have to think before you write it. And I think that it sounds simple, but the extra step to like actually think. Uh, before you write it makes a huge difference in terms of how how quickly we can get to truth. Mm. So that's really cool. And so, yeah, and like a lot of and one last thing is that like you know the whole fake news thing. Like fundamentally, it's not a fake news problem. It's a critical thinking problem. People aren't thinking about the information they consume. So if you just incentivize them and encourage them and build a system that does actually like at least require them to think for a couple of seconds. And that changes the game of like what kind of information can actually get produced. And there's been countless times on the platform where people will come in with a certain view and then someone else would be like, well, what about this? Or what about this? And they'll change their mind. And so we're actually thinking of designing a feature where like we have a button that says like change my mind so that like, you know, you're coming into this conversation with the willingness to change your mind. Mm -hmm. That'd be really cool. And if you could incentivize that with cash, that would be really interesting. Although that would be yeah. cool. Maybe that would give a false incentive though. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think you know where, where we're going, yeah. but yeah. Um, so that's really cool. A uh, couple minutes left. What is one book, article, idea, mindset that you've recently adopted that's helped you become more creative and less stressed? more creative and less stressed interesting um i've uh let me think about this um that it sounds weird but one thing i used to do uh, one thing I used to do before was like I used to, I used to eat like seven or eight meals a day, um, so I was always eating. And I recently changed. This sounds silly; it's a habit, but it's it's. Um, I recently changed. I recently changed to eat like three bigger meals so that, that I'm like less hungry during it. And I actually like noticed that my productivity went up a lot because then I don't have to think about food for like another three or four hours. I love food. And so that's why I used to eat like seven or eight meals a day, every hour, every two hours, I'd be eating something. But I realized that like, that was actually, you know, every time I go to eat something, it was, it was a waste. It was like more time I kill. So that's been an interesting productivity hack for me. Uh, also probably has something to do with the uh, metabolism as well. If you, if you, uh, I found that not eating, I haven't actually eaten a meal yet today uh, is, um, uh, is helps me to, have more clarity in my thought and other things like that. And there's, there's a lot of evidence as well that fasting does, does help with that too. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and how can people find, we've already talked about true story, but how can people find out more about you? Um, they can just follow me on Twitter. So uh, I am Preeti underscore Preeti and, or email me at Preeti at true story.io. And Preeti is P R E E T H I. Correct. Yep, that's right. Awesome. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode with Preeti Kastoretti. I normally would take this time to say, hey, you guys can listen to my episodes every Monday and Friday before your morning commute. But I am doing so many interviews that I am publishing one pretty much every day. So there will always be new content for you to listen to. Uh, I aim to, there's a couple different things I got going on right now that I'm aiming for. Uh, the one that's most interesting to me personally is that I am investigating into the global rise of technology production and innovation outside of Silicon Valley. I believe that Silicon Valley will remain dominant in an absolute sense. Uh, and But there will be huge, huge innovation happening outside. I don't know if anybody saw, but the recent Forbes article about a company in Romania that's really valued at $7 billion. I don't think that's going to end anytime soon. I think uh, in India, there's going to be huge, huge companies. Latin America, YC just invested in a whole bunch of different companies in, in Latin America. And I'm really excited to chronicle this because I have been onto this for a long time, for the last eight years. Uh, I've spent, I've built software outside of outside of this country. I've actually traveled to India to work with a bunch of developers there to build an app and so I've been waiting for this for a long time and I feel like it's 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 happening and I'm really excited to chronicle it and it's funny because I'm chronicling it from my home in San Francisco doing all my interviews remote uh, and I do apologize for the sound quality on some of the zoom calls um, it is difficult to get high quality audio making sure that the other the guest has a good microphone uh, Preeti had a great microphone on this one so that was cool um, but yeah it's I'm really excited about that one. I'm excited about chronicling the rise. I just interviewed my cousin, Eliza Erickson, who works for the Omidyar Network, and they do a lot of interesting stuff in Brazil. And I got some really juicy details about about some of the cool stuff that they're doing with education in Brazil. And I'm really excited about publishing that. Yeah, and I got a few other kind of ideas I'm, or a few other pathways for investigation that I'm doing. And... Hope you guys are enjoying it. And if you do, please find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. Um, or find us on iTunes, searching for Crazy Wisdom. We're also on Spotify, many other platforms. If you really liked this episode, please leave us a review. Anything helps. Um, you know, I'm doing this all on my own. Uh, and I've been doing it for about two years now. So anything you can do to help with the mission, the cause, uh, would be hugely important. Thank you. <laughs>